One of my favorite things of being a pastor, I must say, baptizing babies, weddings, and preaching, and you being your friend. Okay, so um, I'm still trying to figure out how far I go with David. So I think I might go through June, but I'm not positive. You know, this is probably the, this is the last Sunday in May, so this could be the last thing we do in David. Although there are some other really cool stories that are woven into the second chapter of Samuel that I probably will touch on. Um, I'm not going to, just so you know, I'm not going to do David and Bathsheba. I'm so tired of those sermons, so we won't do those, that one. Um, But I do think maybe something about, like, his relationship to those mighty men and why were they so willing to follow him like that. Maybe something along those lines. Uh, we'll see. But today, today is like a really cool sermon. It's on a forgotten character in the Bible. It's actually the forgotten character in the Bible. So that's how we're going to begin with the forgotten. So where is Adolf Steck? Nobody bothers to ask. For the past four years, no one asked, where's Adolf Steck? Where's Mr. Steck? Over four years, neighbors simply thought, well, I guess he's just given up on his yard as the weeds took over his well-manicured lawn, as the bushes grew into a jungle and started concealing a nicely trimmed house. Over time, work crews came and went, and they shut off the electricity, the gas, the water. Even the mailman, he walked by, and he basically said, I guess it's vacant, and he started passing by the house. Then one Tuesday morning, some developers who bought Steck's home through some audit auction, you default on your property taxes, I guess there's these kind of auctions, you can buy houses, these developers bought his house, they finally step inside on this Tuesday morning to Mr. Steck's home, and there sitting in the living room chair is Mr. Steck, mummified. In his lap was a paper dated four years ago. For four years, no one misses him. For four years, no one hears him. For four years, no one sees him. For four years, no one loves him. For four years, no one remembers him. For four years, no one even knows he even exists. For four years, no one asked, where's Adolf Steck? Where is he? He's the forgotten man. Today's text is a unique text because it's divinely designed for a special group of people. And only the special group of people actually know that they're in the club. It's called the forgotten. Those that feel deep in their bones, I am forgotten. Forgotten by God, forgotten by a spouse, forgotten by a parent, forgotten by a teacher, a coach, a culture. You know that you're someone that no one is asking, where is she? Where is he? This passage is for you. 
It's also for another divinely appointed special group of people, and that is the hiding. The hiding are those of you that feel deep in your bones, well, I don't want to be found. I don't want to be found by God. I don't want to be found by a spouse. I don't want to be found by a parent. I don't want to be found by a teacher, a coach, the church, school, the workplace. I don't want anybody asking, where is she? I don't want anyone to notice me. I don't want anyone to hear me. I don't want anyone to see me. I don't want anyone asking, where is he? So here's what we're going to do. This is the plan. I'm going to give you the background you need to this text, and then we're going to stand and read this text. It's going to be chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, okay? If you want your electronic device or the old-fashioned print and a Bible underneath your seat. So what do you need to know before we begin this story? Here's what you need to know. David is no longer on the run. Last time we saw David, when we were together, he was on the run, remember? In 1 Samuel 23 through 25, those two chapters, he was on the run. Uh, David is now the undisputed king of Israel. Undisputed. Well, how did that happen? Because Saul is dead. The Philistines got him. Saul's sons are dead because his sons were with him, including Jonathan. David is finally king. All the tribes of Israel have acknowledged him king. The 11 that were under Saul, the one that was under Judah, everybody has said, you're the undisputed king of Israel. So what do you need to know about chapter 8, which is right before chapter 9? Well, here's what you need to know. The undisputed king wins and wins and wins. Chapter 8 is an itemization of all the victories and all the winnings of David. No one can stand before him. All fall at his feet. There's no army. He's unconquerable. He's undisputed. He is preeminently victorious over and over and over again in all of chapter 8. It's a chronicle of victory. In fact, the chapter ends with these words, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David is not only the undisputed king, he's the victorious king. So what does an undisputed king think about? What is his greatest concern, this undisputed king? What's top of mind as everybody is saying today? I can't stand that phrase, by the way. What does a victorious king feel? What's in his innermost being? What is him? What drives him? What does an undisputed, victorious king do? What gets him up in the morning? What's his mission? Not only what does he think about, what does he feel in the deepest places of who he is, but what motivates him? In other words, why does David do what he does? And I want you to be thinking, why do you do what you do? Why does he be a king? Why does, what drives him to be a father, a husband, a brother, a son, what drives him to work, to create? What drives him to go to church? What drives him in his relationship with God, his relationship with others, the church? Why does he pray? Why would he read his Bible? Why would he fight sin? Why does he? Why does he make friends? Why does he have gospel conversations? Why does he write the Psalms? 
Why does he do all these things? <laughs> Why? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to read chapter 9. If you get tired, you may take a seat. If you're able to stand, please stand. So here we go. And David says, now David's talking to his staff, okay? He's talking to his staff. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Crickets. Finally, the music director speaks up and says, well, there is this dude named Ziba. He might know. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they, so the music director, grabs the youth pastor and they travel to find Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king says, are you Ziba? He says, I am your servant. And the king says, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? Ziba says to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king says to him, where is he? And Ziba says to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So where's Lodabar? Lodabar is as far away from David as you can go. It's the farthest place in all of Israel. It's a dump of a place. It literally means no pasture land. I want you to think of Fargo, Minnesota. Okay? Nobody goes to Fargo, Minnesota. You're there because you were born there. Poor, pitiful you, right? In other words, Mephibosheth, there are two things about him that's happening here. One, he's forgotten by God. He's forgotten. He's the forgotten. He's forgotten by God. He's forgotten by Israel. He's forgotten by Saul's family. He's forgotten by David. He's forgotten by everybody. No one sees him. No one hears him. No one loves him. No one's asking about him. No one is saying, where is he? Second thing you need to know about him, he's hiding. As far from David as possible. Why? Because in the ancient world, when you're a new regime, you look at the old regime and you slaughter them. Every last one of them. Every son, every cousin, every nephew, any aspect of the other person's family, you slaughter them. So you never have a rival and you never have to look over your shoulder. In other words, Mephibosheth is, a, is in a witness protection program and only Ziba knows about it. Got it? Every day Mephibosheth gets up and trembles. Is this the day they finally find me? Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir to son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David says, Mephibosheth! And he answers, Behold, I am your servant. And David says to him, Do not fear, for I will show you the kindness. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, said to him, All that belonged to Saul, all that's in his house, I give to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants will till the land for him, will bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants, and Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord king commands his servant, I will do it. 
So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, here's what you need to know about him. He was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can comprehend and understand. I mean, I've been reading all over in the Psalms and everywhere in the Psalms in Psalm 119. Teach me, show me, open my eyes, incline my heart, give me understanding, give clarity, make it real. Lord, would you do these things by the power of your spirit to all of us, even now, right now, on the spot, not this afternoon, not later in this week when we apply some biblical principle, but right now, on the spot, show up. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So are you the forgotten? Do you feel deep in your bones? I am forgotten. No one's asking where is she? No one's asking where is he? Mephibosheth is the forgotten. Do you know that his name is not even mentioned when he's introduced in the Bible? Look at verse 3. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. No name. He is crippled in his feet. I mean, I just started teasing this out and was thinking, you know what? What should be said? I mean, what would you say? I mean, there's like, it doesn't say Zeba said to the king, yes, David, Jonathan has a son. Mephibosheth is his name. You'll love him. He looks just like his father who you loved. Let's go get him. Ah, there's his son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. So who is Mephibosheth? He's crippled in his feet. Tell me something about Mephibosheth. What is he like? Like, what are his passions, his hobbies? Like, what does he like to do? He's crippled in his feet. Well, tell me about his personality, his Enneagram status. He is crippled in his feet. Well, tell me what's his work? What does he do? What's his mission? What's his calling? What's his gifts, his talents, his abilities? He is crippled in his feet. Well, tell me about his relationships. Is he married? Is he single? Does he have a family? Do people love him? He is crippled in his feet. He is crippled in his feet. How did it happen? It might be one of the saddest stories in all the Bible. The Philistines surround King Saul. Remember, Jonathan and David are best friends. Jonathan is a great dude. I mean, he could have been a better king than David, in my opinion. And even so, he wouldn't leave his dad's side. And so they fight to the death. They're surrounded. They die. All three sons of Saul, their heads are cut off. And they're taken to Dagon, the temple of Dagon of the Philistines, and they're hung up there. And all the word spreads throughout all of Israel. The Philistines are coming! The Philistines are coming! Run for your lives! 
But there's this little five-year-old boy in his front yard looking for his dad to come home from war. The Philistines are coming. The Philistines are coming. Run for your lives. A maid of the house sweeps him up into her arms and starts running for her life. And she drops him. And he is crippled in his feet. Mephibosheth is the forgotten. Let's look at verse 1. And David said to his staff, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness? Hesed. You're going to know, remember? <laughs> it is just so funny, like, so you know I'm coaching the seven-on-seven for the, for the junior high. And so many of the boys now are using the word Selah over and over in practice. Selah! I think Brooks started this. And it's happening. Well, here's your other Hebrew word that you're going to know by the end of the day. You know Selah. Shut up and listen. Now you're going to know Hesed. 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 Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show him Hesed for Jonathan's sake? Now, scholars are completely confused about verse 1. I just want you to know that. I have my... I have my uh, hints, understandings as why the case. But here's what they'll say. They say things like this. What a strange way to begin a new section after all those action-packed victories that David just had in chapter 8. This is so abrupt. It's so unexpected. How does it begin like this? Chapter 9, verse 3. And the king says for the second time, is there still not someone from the house of Saul? Now, don't forget the house of Saul is his enemies. They've been hunting him. They've made him homeless. They've hated him, except for Jonathan. That I may show the kindness of God, Hesed, to him. What is Hesed? Here's the answer. You ready? You might want to write this down. I never say take notes. You might want to write this one down. What is Hesed? No one knows. <laughs> Got it? It's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. So that means it is such good news at such a level, at such a capacity, of such proportions, that it's above everybody, it's beyond everybody. There is no word that can capture Hesed. It's better just to use the Hebrew word, Hesed. This means there's an immediate application for you and me right now. You ready? Hesed is not easily believed. You will have a hard time understanding it. You will have a hard time getting it clear in your mind. It's too good to be true. It's just beyond you. You will have a hard time having it become real in your heart. It's too good to be true. It's capacities. It's dimensions. It's proportions can't be contained. What is hesed? Scholars say whatever it is, it's abundant in its amount. This part was really helpful. I looked at all the Hebrew lexicons, and I thought, you know, this is good stuff, so I'm just going to give it to you. So what, here's three things they say about hesed. It's abundant in amount. 
In other words, it's abundant in its quantity. So words like this are used to describe hesed. Rich, uber wealthy, extravagant, overflows. It's always in the plural. So when you think of hesed, never think of it in the singular. Always think of it in the plural. It has a quantity and an extravagance that's just overflowing. That's number one. The other thing they say about it is that it's great in extent. That is its lifespan. In other words, how long it exists. So you'll see things like in the Bible, if you've heard of like everlasting love, hesed. It's, it's as high as the heavens. It's, it's span, it's existence, it's extent. It never ends. It's endless. It endures. It's steadfast. You'll see that. It's loyal. It's unfailing. Uh, also what's said about it, it's, it exists for thousands of generations. And then when when David tries to describe it in creation, he says, it just goes beyond the heavens. I don't know what else to say about it. So it's abundant, and it's great in its extent. And then the last thing they say about it, it's good in nature. You know what that means? It's substance, like it's DNA. So if you were to take Hesed and cut it open, and it would bleed, it would bleed goodness. It would bleed love. It's pleasing to us, to everything. It's dazzling, beautiful. Those are the words that are used. Astonishing, right? It's God's very heart. So it's talking about he is this. He is hesed. He is, so here are the words, you ready? He is love. He is grace. He is mercy. He is compassion. He is tenderness. He is gentleness. But not only this is not just who he is, this is what he does. So he does love. He does grace. He does mercy. He does compassion. He does tenderness. He does gentleness. What is Hesed? Here, you can write this one down. It is God. It's who he is. ESV says it this way, the kindness of God. So let's go back to the question at the very beginning. What does an undisputed king think about? What does a victorious king feel? What does an undisputed, victorious king do? What's his mission? Why does David do what he does? Why does he be a king, be a father, be an athlete, be a musician, be a hard worker, be a teacher, be a coach, be a professor, be a plumber, be a businessman? Why does he do these things? Why would he create? Why does he do life? Why does he relate to people? Why, why, why? What does an undisputed king think about? Hesed. What does an undisputed king do? Hesed. What does an undisputed victorious king all about? The kindness of God. Hesed finds the forgotten. 
Hesed finds you. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king says to him, Where is he? Where is he? Let's go get him. This is what I think about. This is what I feel. This is what I do. Where is he? If you are the forgotten, please hear me. Jesus says to you right now, he says to you right now, the very first step that I took on earth was to find you. Where is she? Jesus says to you right now, I was forgotten on the cross for your sins so that I could find you and you never would be forgotten. Where is he? He says to you right now, I rose from the dead on the third day to find you. Where is she? I am alive right now to be with you forever. Where is he? Where is he, Jesus says, is what I think about. Where is she, Jesus says, is what I feel. Where is he? Is what I do, Jesus says. And some of you are thinking, but how can I know this? I mean, how, how can I know this to be true? Answer, Hesed. It's who he is. Are you hiding? I don't want anybody to find me. I don't want anybody asking, where is he? Where is she? I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be heard. I don't want to be noticed by anyone. Mephibosheth is hiding. The question is, why? Why is he hiding? Verse 8 are the only recorded words of Mephibosheth in the Bible. The only recorded words. Are you ready? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? For such a dead dog as I. In the modern world right now, David is supposed to comfort Mephibosheth, right? Oh, no, no, a cat maybe, not a dead dog. You're not that bad. It's not that bad, Mephibosheth. You're not as bad as them over there. Check your mental health, Mephibosheth, right? He's supposed to comfort David. But notice that David doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. True spiritual health never does that. It never says something like that to you and to me. Why? Why not? Because it's not true. You, me, all of us, we are dead dogs. And I can't stress this enough. That when you begin to realize you're a dead dog, you are on your way to rising from the dead. And you are on your way to freedoms and joys that you have never experienced in this life. When you fight and pretend 
and put up these incredible defense mechanisms to keep you from facing the truth that you're a dead dog, it's incredibly unhealthy. It's incredibly relationally wrecking. I want you to know the Apostle Paul is just as graphic as Mephibosheth. Maybe he was meditating on this when he wrote Romans. I don't know. But Paul, now remember Paul is an apostle. So some of you are thinking, oh yeah, come on. Christians, Paul is an apostle. I'd say that's a pretty good Christian. And Paul says about himself as an apostle, what a wretched man that I am. I am a body of death. Translated, a corpse, a spiritual corpse sealed in its tomb. Why is Mephibosheth hiding? For the same reason that you and I hide. Because we're all dead dogs. All of us. You know this, you feel this, you do this. Uh, some of you have probably tried positive thinking to not think this way, right? But it doesn't work, does it? You probably tried some mental health strategy to not be a dead dog, but it just never works. It's always there in your conscience. It's always embedded in your soul. Some of us have tried re-education to not feel this way. New ideologies, new propaganda to somehow keep us from thinking this way and feeling this way, but that doesn't work either, right? You know it's true. And then some of us, we even, that we're in the church, we even go and find new doctrines. It's called false teaching in the Bible. But that still doesn't do it, even if you buy it, right? You know, you got to look at it and say, yeah, you see, I mean, you're looking at it and you're like, you seem to be doing a lot of judo with that passage. It's okay, right? But you know, even beyond the judo, in your experience, I am a dead dog. I am a wretched person. You feel it deep in your bones. The words that are used in the New Testament are words like this. I am a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. This is interesting, though. When does Mephibosheth admit this? Isn't it strange? I mean, let's, let's look at when does Mephibosheth finally come to this realization? Why would you show favor on such a dead dog as I? Why would you show hesed on such a dead dog as I? When did that happen for him? When did that happen? Look in the text. How is Mephibosheth able to even admit this? Because this goes against everything that you and I do. We spend our life protecting ourselves from that, walling ourselves from that. We have huge shields to keep us from facing the fact that we're dead dogs. So how in the world did that shield get peeled away? How did he come to admit this? What enabled him, caused him, empowered him to admit this? Here's the answer. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, verse 6, came to David and fell on his face to pay homage. And David says, Mephibosheth. David welcomes him. David embraces him. David loves him. David hesseds him. Mephibosheth. And he answers, behold, I'm your servant. And David says to him, do not fear. David hesseds him. For I will show you kindness. David hesseds him. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land of, your of Saul, your father. David hesseds him. Land, wealth, work, mission, fruitfulness. You have a purpose, Mephibosheth. David hesseds him. 
and you shall eat at my table always. David makes him a son. Hesed's him. And, verse 8, the result, Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Hesed enables us to admit the reality about who we really are. Hesed finds the hiding. And make no mistake about it, I mean, I said it's a specific group of people, like you're in some unique club if you're in the hiding. It means every single person in their seat right now. You all hide. What is the very first thing that Adam did when God showed up after Adam sinned? He hid. Where are you, Adam? Jesus says to all the hiding right now, my first step on this earth was to hesed you. Mephibosheth, Sarah, Jim. I went to the cross to hesed you. Do not fear. I've taken your sin away. Do not fear. I've taken your guilt away. Do not fear. I, in chapter 8, have been victorious over all the darkness in you and around you and everywhere. I'm the undisputed, victorious king. Do not fear. I rose from the dead on the third day to hesed you. You're now a daughter of the king. You now come to my table. You have access to me. I am alive right now, Jesus says, to hesed you. Hesed you richly, extravagantly. Hesed you eternally, unendingly. It's who I am. Pure love, pure mercy, pure tenderness, pure gentleness, pure grace for you. How do you know this is true? Hesed. Because of Hesed. All right, we need to end this thing. So here's how we're going to end. Um, notice that at this point in David's life, he's simply doing king stuff because it's king stuff. Did you notice that? He's just doing king stuff because it's king stuff. He thinks Hesed, he feels Hesed, he does Hesed. It's, he just does king stuff. He's a father because that's what a father is, he's an athlete because that's what athletes do, he's a student because he just does student things. He goes to work because that's his work and that's his calling. He exercises his gifts because that's just his gifts. He does things just because they're things that God made and they're good. He's not doing king stuff to feel good about himself. I'm a great king. He's not doing king stuff to connect with God. Now God will finally love me and accept me and bless me. He's not doing king stuff to be seen as a good king. Oh, there's the great king, great King David. He's not doing king stuff to meet some standard or law of kingship. A successful king does this. Thou art now a great king. Thank you, I finally made it. This is what Hesed does to you. Do you see what happens? When Hesed actually gets in your life, you 
You no longer live life trying to get it. You live your life because you already have it. And you are free just to do king stuff, athletic stuff, music stuff, friendship. Be a good father. Be a good mom. Be a good daughter. You just do stuff. You're no longer doing stuff to get hesed, to get loved, to get accepted. You do it because you already are. That is such a phenomenal, freeing way to live. So, go be a son, go be a daughter, like Mephibosheth, of the king, because you're already loved. You've already been, and I'm making up a word here, hesitated. Pray for us.